Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the first home test for COVID-19 that does not require a prescription will soon be available in the U.S., can we see it coming to Canada? Well, we'll talk about it. Restaurants Canada launches its Picture Life Without Restaurants campaign, calling on consumers across Canada to take action and support local restaurants. We'll find out how we can help. And a new report by Capital Economics looks at what would happen to the economy and interest rates and the loonie if Canadians unleashed all those savings we've been pocketing over the last number of months. Personal finance expert Ravina Ahmed Hack joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some news this week that's uh, rather encouraging. The first home test for COVID-19 that doesn't require a prescription is soon going to be available in U.S. store shelves. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Lauren Small, infectious disease specialist with Trillium Health Partners. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. How I, I want to go back to square one here for this stuff that we were told way back when in March when uh, we first saw just just how egregious this pandemic was and, and the impact it was going to have. And we always talked about testing, testing, testing. And yet the numbers, especially here in Canada, uh, have never really come up to the to the level where we thought they should be. And uh, is 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 this part of the solution to this, or is it is this a, a silver bullet that's going to make things an awful lot easier for us? Well, the, the the testing strategy has always been uh, a bit challenging. Um, you know, we we have relied predominantly on the gold standard test, which is the lab-based PCR test uh, throughout the pandemic, um, and um, you know that that does require a, um, a a pretty significant infrastructure um, and a lot of planning, and it has to be lab-based, um, and uh, and you also need to get the people in to actually get tested um, and putting all that together um, you do have some some um, you know some gridlock there where where you're not going to be getting you know the huge numbers um, that that you need to 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 really make all the difference I mean from a from a community perspective and from a hospital perspective it it works for our purposes um, but it's just becoming more and more challenging um, to, to, you know, get the, the people that need to be tested, tested. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people with mild symptoms out there or no symptoms at all that probably just aren't going to get tested no matter what you do. Well, and we've seen evidence of that, and, and I understand you can't necessarily complain what goes or compare rather what's going on in the states with what's going on here. But you know, we saw long, long lineups, sometimes a mile long, people in cars waiting to get their tests. Uh, and I, I know a lot of people I talked to said, "Yeah, there's no way I'm doing that. I don't have that much time to be able to do that." But but you have to balance that against what I think is a, a very legitimate concern about you know what happens if I am positive. You know, what should I do? Should I stay home? Should I go to work? Uh, what does positive mean? And, and as you mentioned. You could be asymptomatic and not even know it. So there, there, there's still, I think, a validity to say that we need to get testing. Uh, but you're right, the methodology and, and trying to do it in mass numbers like this it was maybe one of the biggest challenges we faced this year. Yeah. And, and you know, the, 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 the new tests are, you know, it, it's good that we have this technology and, um, and, and you know, it, it does provide us some, some hope and, and uh, some options for us. But when we look at these tests, and, and there's a few different types of these tests, um, but when we look at these tests, you, you, you have to look at what setting they're best to be used in. Um, and, and so when you look at what we call the antigen tests, these are, these are the, the rapid tests 
uh, kind of like, you know, similar to a pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. Um, those are not really geared for picking up, um, picking up positive people uh, who don't have very significant symptoms uh, and picking them up in a low, in a, in a high prevalence setting. So as, as the prevalence in the community goes up, um, you're going to be faced with more and more false negatives with these tests. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the nuance that isn't really picked up with, you know, the, the numbers that we see when, when, when there are press releases and when these things get approved. But when you really do a deep dive into the numbers, you realize that in settings like ours, where we actually are a, high, a fairly high prevalence uh, setting for this, it, it actually doesn't make that much sense uh, to be using it because of the false negative possibility. Where it does make sense to use it in areas where uh, there's actually low prevalence um, and, and you're just trying to uh, be reassured that you don't have a problem. But once you already have the problem um, and, and you know, you're reaching areas where you know, 5% or 10% uh, positivity in testing, uh, it can become a little bit problematic there. Something even maybe more elementary that I wanted to get your opinion on, if I could, Doctor. Uh, the fact that these are home testing basically means that it's up to the individuals to how, how they do the test, how efficient it is. Uh, and, and, you know, that could give false negatives or false positives if, if it's not done properly following the instructions. Uh, you know, somebody who may say, well, I'm not going to stick it all the way up my nose. That's going to hurt. I'll just do this. I'm sure I'll get a good reading. So the, it, uh, the concern here, I guess, is can this give us a false sense of security that, uh, no, I was negative, but maybe it's because you didn't apply the test properly yeah absolutely you know the for anybody who has actually had the uh, the nasal swab uh, you, you know it's it's not a pleasant experience and you, and you know you know it's happened um, and you know it's been done right um, and and you know if you're administrating it yourself I, I don't know if you could actually you know do it to, to the extent where uh, you know you are going to get that that proper sample um, and, you know, in the tests that are available that don't require that same type of sample, like there's, there's one out there that's, um, again, it, it's the, one of the antigen tests, uh, which is kind of referred to as the lollipop test, where it's, you know, you, you, you suck on the equivalent of a lollipop and it tests your saliva. Uh, you know, where that's being out there being tested, but the results of that, you know, haven't been shown to be great. Um, so, you know, when we look at the gold standard, which is the nasopharyngeal swab, the you know the the deep nasopharyngeal swab, um, that's not that really is not an easy thing uh, to do, um, and people need training to do it properly. Uh, and uh, they tell us this is a different methodology too. The uh, the test that's uh, that's being released here, the Illum, it's an Australian company, if I understand correctly. Uh, that uh, they're actually testing uh, scanning for proteins, uh, which is a somewhat different situation like that. Does, uh, does the fact that it's a, a different uh, technique uh, alter the, the numbers at all as opposed to the ones, as you mentioned, the, I hate to use the word traditional swabs, but the ones that we've been using since, uh, since we started testing? Yeah, so the, the, the traditional swabs are, are what we call PCR tests, and, uh, and they pick up the uh, genetic material uh, from from the virus, um, and there's a there's a um, a rapid one 
uh, like that, which is called the ID Now from Abbott, um, which which is works in a similar uh, way. It, it, it detects the genetic material, and it's a rapid one. But unfortunately, that one does require a machine, and it can only do one at a time. So it's really you know for for home use, it's it, it's not really going to work. It's it's great for the hospital where you need to know that one person right now. Um, if they are positive or in like a rural setting where you don't have that many people, but you, but you need them to get tested. Then the other tests are what we refer to as the antigen tests, uh, and, and those, those pick up proteins, like you said, um, and, uh, and the Illum is, is one of those. Um, and it, while those work and, and they do pick up the proteins, they're, they're certainly not as, uh, not as good and not as sensitive um, as the traditional PCR test that we use in the hospital. Uh, but like I said before, you know, each of these can have its place, but it does require uh, proper um, testing and validation to actually see where it would be used best. How would you uh, acquire that validation? Uh, uh, let's assume I, I, I buy one of these tests, so it's about 30 bucks apparently, uh, and, and I test positive. Uh, what, where, what's my next step? Do I call my family doctor? Do I say, hey, I got a positive test here. Can I come in? Should I come in? What, what, what happens next? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it depends on the scenario. Uh, if you have a positive test in one of these tests and, and, and you have symptoms, you know, you're, you're and you know, you're, you're feeling okay, uh, you're probably best just isolating yourself and, and, and making sure that your, your, your close contacts are quarantining. Um, obviously, if you're unwell, then you need to come into hospital. But, you know, if, if you're unsure, like let's say you, you have minimal symptoms or no symptoms, and you have one of these positive tests, you're probably still going to have to seek out the traditional testing to know, um, to know if, in fact, that is a true positive. But, I think the the riskier part of it is actually the false negative piece because um, you know maybe you don't have symptoms or you have minimal symptoms and you get that false negative from one of these rapid antigen tests uh, and then you feel you you know you have a passport to go out and do anything you like um, and um, you you know you've kind of missed the boat there because you're out there spreading it uh, without having the the proper gold standard test. How long does the uh does this stay in your system? I mean, you know, we've, we've been told that it's quite possible that quite a few of us probably have act, maybe even contracted the virus at some point uh, and be, were asymptomatic and got over it, maybe but just thought it was a sniffle or something like that. Uh, and, and so, you know, we've, we've talked about the fact that people that did have it would build up some sort of antibodies, that, that, or does the virus itself stay within it? We don't know a whole lot about this at, at this point, do we? Yeah, so the, the, the virus itself probably doesn't stay uh, for more than two weeks, uh, usually, usually 10 days at most. Um, but the, um, the signs of the virus having been present uh, can stay for weeks to months. So, you know, it, it's pretty common that people will have been sick uh, and uh, weeks or even months later, for some other reason, uh, they do get the, the traditional PCR test, which is extremely sensitive uh, and picks up minute amounts of the genetic material. Uh, and, and, you know, anybody that's had pneumonia or a bad viral respiratory tract infection knows that, you know, you can be coughing for weeks uh, to even months afterwards, uh, and you're, you know, you're coughing up sputum and dead cells. And, and that genetic material, even though there's no viable virus there, 
that genetic material from the dead virus can, can be in those cells. Uh, and so the, the PCR traditional testing can sometimes be picking up that genetic material months afterwards. Um, but it doesn't mean there's live virus there, um, and, and usually it's just residual. Uh, the, the antigen test, similarly, you might be able to pick up proteins there. But um, you bring a, up a good point about the antibodies. That's a whole different type, other type of test where we do serology um, to see if your body does have antibodies, um, and that would be indicative of having the test, uh, having the infection in the past, but you don't really know the timing uh, if, if, if you've never had symptoms, then you don't really know when that infection actually occurred. Um, and that, that serology test is generally used in the hospital when, you know, people have symptoms and, we're, and their test keeps coming back negative and we're not sure if they have COVID. Uh, we want to confirm it and we can use that serology test. Uh, but the antibody test on a daily basis for the, for the community doesn't really provide that much information. Where the antibody test really uh, is helpful uh, is in kind of community surveillance and epidemiology uh, and kind of figuring out what proportion of the population at any time had had the infection. We should mention, by the way, that we're talking about the availability of these tests. This is in the United States. This is the American Food and Drug Administration that's given the thumbs up for this. Uh, can we assume that Health Canada is assessing this as well? They're probably assessing it. Uh, you know, Health Canada tends to be more conservative about these things. Um, you know, these were uh, rolled out in an emergency fashion uh, by the FDA. Um, I'm not sure how much planning went into it in terms of how these would be used. Um, you know, if Health Canada was to approve these, um, there'd have to be a lot more work done uh, on the back end uh, in terms of how they would be deployed and where they would be used. Because if you don't have a comprehensive plan to use these properly, um, they end up being, they can end up doing more harm than good. So you, you real, like I said before, you really need to know where each of these tests is going to be best suited for it to make a difference. Doctor, how often should we get tested? And I, I understand the, the first part of the answer is certainly, I guess, what, what do you do for a living? I mean, if you're a frontline worker, I guess they get tested at least on a daily basis, if not more. Uh, apparently hockey players do too. But, uh, but for the, the average individual that uh, is, is concerned about this and to say, you know, I should look into this uh, once a week, uh, how, what, is there a barometer that we should follow here? Yeah, so the, really the only, the only people that should be, te be getting tested regularly um, are, are people that are, are, are inclined to be uh, exposed very often and working uh, with vulnerable people. So we're talking about like long-term care, health workers, nursing home uh, workers, um, people that are, are working uh, with COVID patients, uh, or if, you know, in the hospital, uh, if, we, uh, if we have an indication that there's an outbreak on a ward, um, then, you know, regular testing uh, of the high-risk, higher-risk staff uh, makes sense. Regular testing of uh, people in the community uh, at lower risk uh, doesn't make all that much sense. The, 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 the test really isn't geared for that. Um, if there is, um, where it works best is obviously if you have symptoms. That's, you know, if you have symptoms, um, even if they're mild symptoms, and especially if you, if you, if you think you've had an exposure, you should definitely be getting tested. Um, if you don't have symptoms, uh, but you know or you suspect that you've been exposed, it makes sense. And, and one caveat of that is 
that if you know if you know you've been exposed to somebody who's who's had COVID, um, running out to get tested uh, the day that you think you've had the exposure may not be the best thing to do. Um, because the 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 within you know the first day or so after being exposed, even if you even if you have picked up the infection, you may not actually pick it up in the test. So generally, when there's when there's been a definite exposure or a suspicion of an exposure, we generally do recommend waiting a few days uh, before actually getting tested, and you should be quarantining yourself during that time, uh, and then getting tested. You know at least probably three days after the exposure, uh, if not a little bit longer, five days, because the longer you go uh, from, from the exposure, the higher likelihood is you'll, you'll, you'll uh, get an accurate test. Which segues kind of nicely into the idea about contact tracing, and we haven't done a very good job of that in the last few months, have we? So co- contact tracing um, ha- has become um, very challenging, um, and I can tell you, uh, you know, both in the community as well as, you know, in the hospital, we do our own contact tracing when, when you know, we have staff or there's been exposures uh, in the hospital. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just becoming really more challenging in terms of the volume uh, as well as the complexity uh, of actually figuring out where the exposures are coming from. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with, you know, in the first wave, um, we were locked down. People weren't really having all that much community activity uh, and actually doing the contact tracing and finding the exposures was a lot easier or finding the people that were exposed was a lot easier. But now we're, even though we're, we're still sometimes saying we're in lockdown, we're still, we still really do have much more community activity going on and there's a lot more movement going on out there. Uh, and it becomes such a, a challenge to actually figure out, you know, what person was exposed by this person, where this person got exposed, and it, it's just becoming more and more complex. Which is why we have to play defense as much as possible and be cognizant of what's going on. Uh, Doctor, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Thank you for so much for having me. Take care. Dr. Lauren Small, infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. I want to talk about an industry that has been hard hit uh, during the pandemic and the shutdown and with uh, the talk even in the last couple of days now here in Ontario about possibly another shutdown, uh, putting the, the whole of southern Ontario, uh, as some mayors are suggesting, into a lockdown position for a week, two weeks, who knows what it's going to be like. Uh, you have to wonder just, uh, you know, about the restaurant industry in itself. Uh, the numbers here are staggering uh, about the impact that it has had here, the number of closures, uh, and many of them may not even open again, depending on just uh, how things go with the pandemic, how go things how things go with shutdowns, and, and how we as consumers respond to that. Cindy Simpson is with a uh, terror spokesperson for Restaurants Canada, who are uh, the executive vice president of Imago Restaurants. And there's an interesting program that's coming up right now called Picture Life Without Restaurants. It's a campaign calling on consumers to support local restaurants. And we're pleased to welcome Cindy Simpson to the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Cindy, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning, Bill, and uh, good morning, Hamilton. Uh, and London, uh, we're both with you and today, London. and, we're, and I've, I've I've eaten at some of the fine restaurants in both cities over the years, and uh, I, I'm very concerned about this. I know people in the industry, uh, and they're hurting. I mean, the numbers that I saw here: ten thousand restaurants have already closed across Canada, fifty uh, percent of them uh, maybe permanently, unless things change dramatically. This this is a pretty dire circumstance. Yes, 
Well, 50% is a very scary number, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we have, and we, Restaurants Canada has information that um, 87% of customers across Canada agree that restaurants are safe, and 92% agree that they are important to the community. And um, I'm sure wherever you are in Canada, you can walk down the street and see closed retail and restaurants today. Um, it may not be clear that they're permanently closed, but it is uh, a frightening situation in um, small town, small you know, small town or Main Street, Main Streets all across the country. Yeah, and I, I want to be inclusive here too, because every time we talk about this, and we talk about some of the local restaurants, and, and they're very important. And as you know, we have a, a fabulous uh, restaurant industry here in Hamilton uh, over the last number of years uh, that has kind of grown organically in the downtown core, and some some great restaurants and some fabulous chefs. Uh, but I mean, even the people that are running franchise things—I mean, they're franchisees. I mean, they're—they're they're putting their blood, sweat, and tears into it too. And everybody's hurting right now. I—I uh, I don't want to delve too deeply into the politics, I guess, here, Cindy, about some of the restrictions that have been put in place. Uh, but I—I I, I will state this because I know a number of people in the industry that have uh, expressed serious concerns about this. Uh, there's, a, a, I think, a feeling among some of the restaurateurs I know that, that maybe this particular industry is being targeted a little more than it should be uh, with the suggestion that, well, that's where a lot of the spread is coming from. And I don't see, and so far I have not seen, any statistical evidence to indicate that's the truth. Well, well, yes. and Well, two things. First of all, franchisees often are independent business people, yep. and they need just as much support as the independent restaurateur. Yeah, and, you may you um, may see the big corporate name on the front there, but that's somebody else's life savings that have been dealt into that to get the franchise, and and they're 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 slugging it out in there too. Exactly, and I would hate to make any distinction between the two at this time, because you're right, they are working just as hard as um, independent restaurateurs. The um, but your um, second point is uh, we we just feel like we would we we have not been. Um, we would like the we would like the government, the municipal govern, governments, and the um, provincial government to show us that restaurants are indeed um, unsafe. We don't believe they are. I can only speak for my own company, but my own company in my own company we have seven locations, and this year, and we're not at the end of the year, but this year we haven't had one COVID-related case amongst staff or employee uh, our customers and i think a lot of restaurant people could say that well and again like i say i my information is anecdotal you've done a lot more research analytics into this but uh, i i'm sharing the same concern here and i as i say i've you know, especially the blanket one, and you know, but you know, only ten people allowed in a particular situation, uh, and that that you could know, have a, a three thousand square foot or a thirty thousand square foot facility, mm. you still only allowed ten people. That doesn't make sense. Not no sense at all. Uh, but but those are the those are the rules and the regulations right now, and it's 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 really cri- crippling the industry, isn't it? It is, and that is ten people allowed in. Um I get, in, in Hamilton, I think there's 10 people allowed, but in other yeah. jurisdictions, yeah, yeah, we're a red including zone, yeah. the whole GTA, their GTA and York County and Peel County are in a gray zone, and that is no one is allowed in the restaurant. So they're surviving on takeout, um, pickup, uh, delivery services. So, uh, yes. How, how difficult is that, Cindy? Because this is... 
deja vu all over again. We went through this in the springtime when there was a lockdown, and, and many of these restaurants had to rely strictly on takeout and, and uh, delivery services and things of this nature. Uh, but well, let, let's face it, there, there's nowhere, no way that they could be doing the volume of business they would do under quote-unquote normal times. Well, in our situation, we're doing 5% of our sales. With all of the things that, that um, I've spoken about, we're selling Christmas baskets. We're doing everything we can. We've opened up a, a little grocery store area, um, but our sales are 5%. So without these government subsidies and supports and commitment to these supports it, for 2021, we will not survive. Our company will not survive. And, and therein lies the problem. I'm I'm guessing that a lot of people don't even understand the magnitude of this. You know, when we talk about a number like this of, of 10,000 restaurants that have already closed, uh, and they're going to say, yeah, yeah, but once, you know, once we get the, uh, the vaccinations, you know, things will be happy and everybody will come back. Uh, the restaurant business is tough. Uh, even under normal times, it's tough. It's a very competitive business. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of, it's high overhead. I mean, you know, some of the stuff that you have to pay for, you, you have absolutely no control over, depending on what's going on in the rest of the world with supply chains and things of this nature. Uh, so I, for people to naively think that, look, this is all going to be fine in about a year and everybody will be back to normal and making lots of money and we'll all live happily ever after. That's not really the case. I know a lot of owners are very concerned that they may never open those doors again. Mm. Well, that's why we're, that's why we've launched this program and um, um, just, and we want to let people know that restaurants are safe. They will be safe in the future. And we're, because, because there is a vaccine on the horizon and, and, you know, really who knows how that's going to play out, but because the vaccine is on the horizon, we want to let people know that in due time, your restaurant, your favorite restaurant, your favorite employee, the people you love to go and see, will be will be ready for you. Well, and I, I feel I feel I feel like yes, it's going to be a long haul, and it will next year will be will be difficult. It won't be as difficult as this year though. And the, the the thing here is that you know because we hear about some of the bad actors, whether it's restaurants or some other you know commercial establishments, uh, there are some people that thumb their nose at the restrictions and simply say, "I'm going to go ahead and do this." And but they're few and far between. Yeah, uh, they're few you know, and the, far. The ones I've seen, and you know, we we try to to do what we can, you know, with, within the resources that we have here, you know, with the, these restrictions and these restrictions. But you know, they're masking the staff are masked. Uh, they're taking all the precautions of vis a vis you know separation, uh, you know. A, a dining hall that might have had uh, 20 tables now has five or six tables uh, mm -hmm. with uh, social separation that's going on. So, you know, they're working on that. Uh, even the patrons I've seen in most of these places, uh, they're masked. I mean, they take the mask off if they're going to eat or drink, obviously, at their table. But if they get up to go someplace else, go to the, the, the washroom or something, they mask. I mean, they're doing all the stuff they're supposed to do uh, mm -hmm. and taking all the precautions, which I, I guess is why... Uh, as you said from the uh, the research you've done, uh, there doesn't seem to be a, a case to be made that there's spread going on because of restaurant patrons. No, and that's that's quite true. The you know the industry is a ninety three billion dollar industry, and this year we will probably net out at forty eight billion dollars, so half, so half. And um, we at the beginning of the year had one point two million people employed. Now we have in, just in my own company. We had 275 employees. Now we only employ 20 people. I mean, this is very sad. What is going to happen to all of these people? And um, there's just um, there's hundreds of thousands of people 
out of work and may not come back to work in our industry. And this is really the scary thought. And our communities, the people that really, really like restaurants, and that's everyone, they're really going to miss them. It's going to, it's going to change the fabric of, our, of uh, all of our societies. Well, it's going to leave a big hole in some, uh, you know, downtown cores or other areas, and even in smaller towns uh, where it's going to have more of an impact. You know, the, the, as you say, uh, in in good times, uh, places like this are they're gathering spots for people, and you know, they're they're places where people who work in a downtown core to go and grab something to eat and to socialize, and that's that's not happening to the extent that it had. So, uh, I, I, when I saw about this program, when I read about this this picture life without restaurants campaign, I wanted to get you on here to talk about this because this is basically, I guess, as much as anything else, and education program isn't it uh, cindy to simply say look at there is a way that you can still support the restaurant industry it may not be the way you're used to doing it uh but uh, but you can do this and, and it's a matter of using some of the stuff you've talked about you know, order takeout uh, you know have food delivered if you can't get out of your own house if you're mm-hmm. self-isolating for a variety of reasons uh and and it's it's not the best way, but it's, it is a way to, to at least keep some of these places afloat from a financial standpoint. And uh, well, it keeps, yes, it keeps the doors open and it yeah. keeps people employed. And um, we, d- the delivery programs have been fantastic. They've been great with our companies, but um, we also encourage dine in or dine in, and where there are only ten seats available, but also take out, pick up. I always tell our our customers, why don't you just take a walk, get some fresh air and just stop by and pick up dinner. Which I think a lot of people are doing, and, and I got to credit mm-hmm. also because, I mean, even during the first wave back in the spring and early summer uh, when the lockdown was occurring, uh, and, and we tried to, to help and support the restaurants as much as we could by using takeout services uh, or, you know, pick up at the, at the back door or whatever the case might be. Uh, the restaurants themselves have done a pretty decent job of, of, of pivoting and changing their attitudes and changing, actually making, you know, certain specials, menu changes, et cetera, to try to make it more attractive to them. Uh, and uh, I, I got to tell you, it, it really worked. I mean, it's not as if you're just going to get a brown bag with stuff in it. I mean, they, they've actually done some pretty inventive things and pretty creative things to try to make this a, a, a wholesome experience for everybody who takes part. Well, you know, we are independent business people. That's how we started this conversation. Yeah. And we are innovative. And we um, are entrepreneurial. We, we, we have been running businesses for a long time. We know how to do things. We know what we need to do when sales are soft or they're down or how to keep the business going. That's, that's what we do as independent business people. Well, there's a number of different uh, links here that uh, that we can talk about here. I know there's a YouTube video that talks about the picture of uh, life without restaurants. Um, there's also the public service announcements, which you're going to be undertaking, so people are going to hear a lot more about this in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, the three pieces uh, come together, uh, super, or supportrestaurants.ca, where consumers can actually pledge their support in the form of actions they're going to take. Uh, the Restaurants or Family Toolkit is interesting, too. This is really, I guess, mm-hmm. a, a tool that can be downloaded uh, that provides a, a lot of helpful information and options uh, for every operator. So it, you're not just reaching out to consumers in this situation. You're also saying to your, your fellow restaurateurs, uh, let's share information here as to how we can make it better for each and every one of us. Well, yes, Restaurants, Can- Restaurants Canada is a member-driven organization, and we uh, rarely reach out to the public and let them know what's going on. But because of the pandemic, it's been so severe, and uh, our we just felt that we had to let go directly to the public and tell them what our problems are and 
how we um, need to go forward. And we've had so much support from our customers. It's the outpouring has the outpouring has been incredible, and we really appreciate it. And we're asking them for their help. We're asking, um, you know, everyone for our, their help um, to help us get o- reopened. Well, and what I've tried to do, and I think a lot of friends that, that we've talked to have tried to do, is uh, is look at you know once a week if that if you can do more than that great but even once a week just order from a restaurant get takeout from a restaurant and uh, and and keep them going in situations like that and and you know let's face it we i'm sure we all have a, you know a handful of favorite restaurants that we like to go to you know rotate them you know one week go to this one go to that mm-hmm. one and and you know it's it's a matter of keeping the you know the oxygen in there so uh, we do know that uh, that there was a light at the end of the tunnel it's 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 not going to happen overnight uh, but we want to make sure that uh, that enough people are, are at least existing and, and, and getting by so that when those better days do come, that they're, they're ready to open the doors again and welcome us all back in. Well, you're, do, you're doing a perfect job. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> if everybody can go, go to their favorite restaurant or the one down the street once a week, that, that will really, really help. Well, listen, congratulations on the initiative. Uh, good luck with the campaign, Cindy. I think it's a fabulous idea. Uh, it's, it's one of those industries that, uh, that we really need to pay attention to because it's really been crippled by what's gone on here. And I know there have been some programs that have uh, been put in place by governments to try to help uh, some of those businesses and some of the employees too. But, you know, when we talk about the un- unemployed people that have been laid off, I mean, there are underemployed people too that may have been called back at one point. Uh, but they're not getting the hours that they did at one time, too, and that's that's somewhat problematic for everybody involved. So uh, the sooner Absolutely. we can all support this, just so, show our support uh, and, and order in, or, and, and, you know, if you can still dine in, let's face it, I know, well, for instance, in our London listeners, uh, you know, those restaurants are still open. There are some restrictions. Uh, Hamilton's in a red zone. It's a little more restrictive here, but uh, you know, do what you can, and, and, you know, you'd be surprised at how pleasant the experience can actually be. Uh, we'll stay in touch, and uh, we'll be tracking this. I, I know you certainly will, Cindy. Uh, thanks so much for uh, being with us here today, and uh, continued good luck with this. Thank you for having me. Take care. Cindy Simpson, of course, one of the Ontario spokesperson for Restaurants Canada. How, imagine restaurants. Imagine no restaurants. Now, it's pretty bleak, isn't it? doesn't have to happen, though. We can do our part, just a little bit at a time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked an awful lot, and I think justifiably so, about you know the national economy, the local economies uh, that are going on, and you know those are some of the things we've talked about on the program today. The restaurant industry is a big part of that. Small businesses that are, are hurting as a result of what's gone on with the pandemic, uh, and I know there's a great deal of trepidation in those businesses right now because of the talk over the last four or five days, especially now, about maybe a general lockdown over the Christmas break. Uh, we don't know if that's what the provincial government's going to be doing, but they're talking about it. And uh, there's uh, a, a pretty much strong consensus, I guess, from the uh, GTAHA, the Greater Toronto-Hamilton Area Mayors, that that's not a bad idea, that maybe we should shut everything down to try to knock the, the spread and to try to be- beat the curve. Uh, not quite sure exactly you know, how the, the business people feel about that, because, I mean, they're hanging on by their fingernails as it is, and it's going to be somewhat problematic. But uh, we are well watching what happens at Queen's Park. Of course, there's usually a daily announcement uh, from the Premier or somebody on his staff anyway uh, in his cabinet. And uh, we're expecting that if there's going to be a change in those designations, that it may probably happen tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, that, that's going to be a, a, a real pain for small businesses that are stretching 
And as, as difficult as it is to run a business in, in these uh, restrictive uh, formats because of what's gone on with the pandemic, uh, you know, the, the fact to simply say, okay, you know, during what usually is one of the busier times for shopping, uh, to shut the doors and simply say you guys can't do any business at all is, is going to be hurtful. And there's always some concern about the long-term impact that that's going to have on people. So we're very concerned about that, and we're going to be tracking that story over the next little while. But then there's the case of, of personal finances, too. And uh, that, that's a mixed bag. I'm hearing all sorts of different stories and talking to different financial experts about that and uh, and about, uh, you know, what we are going to be doing. Uh, let's face it, you know, if, if you've been living in uh, a lockdown situation or if you've been working from home for the last number of months, and many of us have, uh, you're not spending as much money as you usually did. You, you, that, that commute that you were making, whether it was just to a, a downtown core, maybe across town, maybe to another city uh, where your job is, uh, you know, a lot of those expenses have been saved, and we're putting more pocket money in our pockets now than we probably ever have in the past years. And I think there are some programs and some statistics that will actually bear that out. Uh, and that's going to be a factor in just what's going to happen, maybe not even during this Christmas season, but going forward, uh, what's going to happen. If we uh, Are we going to spend that money? Are we going to be uh, nervous about what's going to be happening and hang on to it? I mean, you know, maybe you have a few extra hundred, maybe even a few thousand extra bucks in your pocket over the last nine or ten months uh, because of not spending the kind of money that you usually spend on things like fuel and, and transportation costs and things of that nature, uh, or a number of other things, too. A lot of us are getting pretty antsy about that, although you drive by any Costco or any of the other shopping malls, and uh, I, I understand. I'm not, I'm not saying I don't believe what the retailers are telling us because they're the ones that are looking at the bottom line each and every day. But, boy, those parking lots are full, and the lineups outside the stores are there. So uh, we may be not spending as much money as we usually do, but, boy, there's a lot of us that are trying, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a really difficult predicament. Now, here's the thing. In 2021, things may get better, we think. Uh, and that depends on so many different factors. I mean, the vaccinations in, in this country have started, although it's a trickle at this stage. It's going to be frontline healthcare workers, as we know, and that's going to take a while, simply because of the, uh, the limited number of vaccines that are out there. Uh, but they'll look after that. And then, of course, the frail, the elderly, the seniors over age 65, uh, if if you're in pretty good shape and you're under 65, you're probably going to have to wait towards uh, maybe August, September before that sort of thing happens. But in the meantime, with better days ahead and a feeling of optimism, the vaccine is there. What are we going to do with our money? Are, are we going to start spending again? Are we going to just say, this is it, you know, let's let's go and buy those big ticket items? Or are we going to be too nervous? Because either way, it's going to have an impact on, on our economy, uh, whether we're going to be withholding money or putting money into the economy. Uh, there's a, a, a benefit and, a, and some problems either way with this. So to try to get some perspective on this, uh, please to welcome back to the program, uh, Rabina Ahmed-Hak, who is a personal financial expert and always a welcome guest on the program. Rabina, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Which, you're, you're a glasses-half-full person all the time. Are you, uh, are you optimistic economically about what might happen in 2021? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Canadians who have been able to work uh, throughout the pandemic um, and all those things that you mentioned um, have been able to stockpile quite a bit of cash, and they're, they're itching to spend it, um, and which is really good for the economy. I mean, um, the problem has been is that uh, the middle to upper class have been able to keep their jobs in some, some, some sense um, and work from home and continue to build their wealth, whereas the, the, you know, the middle to lower class, if you want to call it that way, uh, who maybe work a minimum wage, minimum wage jobs, work in restaurants, hospitality, hotel industry, 
have not been able to work at all and have been relying on government uh, benefits to get through the last eight, nine months. And um, normally what happens is, you know, when upper middle class people make money, they go to restaurants and they spend it. And so it flows back into the pockets of those people who maybe make those minimum wage jobs, but then get it, uh, you know, have a lot of um, have a bump in salary from people just coming in and dining at restaurants, which has not been happening. So the money that's being saved is really, um, you know, at the burden of those people who normally would enjoy that extra spending that most people do. And, and, you know, we know the savings rate jumped at 28 percent in the second quarter of, of 2020. Uh, that was all because of the pandemic. Everything was shut down. There was nothing to do. There was no cost of commuting. And so a lot of people were able to stockpile a lot of cash. So I'm, I am I am optimistic that in 2021 that a lot of people are going to open their wallets and start spending again. Actually, that, the, the amount of money that, that, that we've got tucked away someplace is actually higher than a lot of other the G7 nations. I, I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, we were, uh, uh, from a financial perspective, whether it be government debts or household debt, much stronger than all the G7 nations going into the pandemic. Um, if we compare, you know, um, uh, United States to Canada, we were uh, four times stronger financially going into the pandemic, which is why they were able to bring out these programs uh, provincially and federally. And it's, the, it's those government programs that have put a lot of money into people's pockets that they've been saving. In some cases, and this is the conversation to have maybe after the pandemic is over, people were actually making more money on CERB than they were working full-time in their jobs. Mm -hmm. And so that is, you know, it's a sad reality to think that, you know, many people are living off less than $2,000 a month and that CERB actually paid them better uh, than when they were working full-time. So there, you know, we are in a better situation going forward. Um, Interest rates most likely are going to stay low until 2023. We're already seeing reports from places like Korea, they're always very optimistic about the housing market, but they're saying that, you know, housing prices could jump by 9%. And that is really going to affect places like Hamilton, where um, they haven't seen as big of an uptick as places like Toronto and Vancouver. Um, You know, but people are now starting to move further and further out of the major city core uh, because they want more space. They want more room. And um, that's a really big benefit for um, communities that live around, that are, are situated around big cities. Yeah, I saw that report yesterday, and they, they, they actually redlined two cities, uh, Hamilton and, and Moncton, New Brunswick, as, as two places where that, that bubble is going to start to grow uh, probably in the next year, uh, which I guess is good news if you want to sell your house. Uh, you know, that looks like a, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to be in for a, a mother load, but things are looking pretty good from that standpoint. Not so good, I guess, if you're a buyer. Are we going to spend, though, uh, Rubina, or are we going to be nervous and say, yeah, you know what we just went through, this could happen again, or are we just going to say, no, no, everything's good now? And, you know, it really depends. It's just like any other situation. Some people, you know, know, regardless of how much you tell them they need to save, they to continue to put charges onto their credit card. I think it's going to be a blend of both. I really do hope that those people who didn't have an emergency fund going into the pandemic, and now if they have some extra money, um, you know, even during the holidays, uh, normally a family spends something like $1,500 on the holidays, and that's really because of travel, because maybe you travel across the country to see your family, or, you know, you go, you, you drive long distances, and all of that costs quite a bit of money, especially if you're getting onto a plane. But none of us are doing that right now, and that's putting money back in our pockets. So I would hope 
that you would make your first priority, of course, paying down high interest debt if you have any. And second, build that emergency fund. And then if you have extra money after that, you can spend it uh, feeling good, not only that you're getting the economy going by putting money back into it, but also you have taken care of your own personal finances, got that emergency fund, got that debt down, and everything seems to be uh, much more financially healthy than it was before. You mentioned the Bank of Canada and interest rates. Let's talk about that for a second. I understand that we're in, into the speculation mode here, but uh, invariably when there's a whole lot of spending going on, that's when they get kind of itchy fingers at the Bank of Canada and say maybe we should jack interest rates up just a little bit. Uh, given the precarious nature of the economy and the fact that we're not going to bounce back right away uh, in 2021, I, I can't see the Bank of Canada getting that, that brave. I, I think you're right. I think we're probably going to see interest rates stay pretty much where they are now. Yeah, so the Bank of Canada has made it almost clear that they're not going to raise rates anytime soon. I mean, 2023 is the first time they're even going to entertain that idea. The economy has to really be on track. The last thing the Bank of Canada wants to do is raise rates and then prematurely, um, you know, make it more expensive for people who have debt to, to, uh, to, uh, to, um, uh, to pay those debts down, to, to service those debts and also to discourage people from uh, borrowing because borrowing is, you know, gets, keeps the economy going. You, you borrow to buy something that helps side company. Um, you pay interest to the, to the bank that helps, you know, generally that's what, that's what the Bank of Canada wants. They want you to, they want you to continue to feel comfortable uh, spending money. So, uh, you know, whether they raise it before other countries or not, um, I don't think that really matters. I know this report really was focusing on, you know, we might, we might, um, we might raise rates too early. I think 2023, no one can predict where we're going to be. Uh, first, we've got to get this vaccine. We've got to get everyone vaccinated. Then we've got to see what everyone's comfort level is. And then we've got to see what people go back to. I know even personally speaking, there's a lot of things that I did pre-pandemic that I'm not spending money on anymore. I just, I just don't feel like they add value in my life and I've had time to reassess. And I'm just not going to spend that money because I don't think it really makes any sense of re, uh, you know, resurrecting something that uh, was costing me a lot and didn't make me very happy to begin with. It was that little voice in the back of our head that said, you know, I guess I really didn't need that after all. Yeah, you know, a lot of us uh, get into routines, right? Like get together for drinks every Thursday with colleagues or mm -hmm. meet a certain person once a month for a dinner because they're an old friend from high school. You know, we've had time away from all of those kind of obligatory things that we tend to do that become part of our routine. And a lot of us are just not interested anymore in, in doing that, spending our time and our money with people or on things that just don't make us happy. Uh, I, I had a ton of other things I want to talk to you about, including taxes and, 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 and tax breaks for people working at home. But that's going to have to wait for another time because that's, that's a long conversation. Uh, tax time is going to be a nightmare for an awful lot of people in just a couple of months. Always a pleasure to get you on the program, Ravina. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. Yeah, have me on anytime. I'd be you happy to. Thank Take you. care. Rabina Ahmed Hak, a personal financial expert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.